It's great to be here today. Last time I was here was one year and one day ago. And it's, I intended to be back more often than this to visit with you. But it seemed there was an unwelcome visitor called a virus that came our way. And that sure has cut down on uh, being able to go, any, uh, go anywhere. Uh, I'm happy to be here. We have so many, many visitors from different congregations. Happy to see each of you today, some that, I haven't, some that I haven't seen in quite some time, and we're happy to have you in the presence here today. I see a good friend of mine, Brad Underwood, back here. His son showed up at the, at the church in Norman the other day. My grandson, Paul, at six foot four, has always been the tallest person in the building. Not anymore. <laughs> that young man is... I think he said he was 6'7", and he's 17 years old. He's got a couple more inches to grow. And so uh, Paul is now the second, uh, the second tallest in the building. But we're glad, we're glad he was there, and he was enjoying the association together with a lot of the uh, young people that was. We have so many college students this year. It's unreal, the number of college students that we have as a part of the church there. I am back today after some 62 years as a part of this church. Tim mentioned this morning that I served as an elder or as a deacon and an elder in this congregation for 50 years. 27 years as a deacon, 23 years as an elder. My wife had been here for some 78 years. She's not with me today. She's in rehab, having a, lot of, uh, having a lot of problems. We hope to get her out of rehab about Thursday. But she's been my wife for some 62 years. She's the one that's been my partner. She's been my best critic. Ty, she was the one that would look through my notes. She'd see something in there she didn't like. She knew I wasn't going to take it out of my notes. So when I got to that part of it, She'd sit out in the audience and make faces at me. But we've, uh, it's been a good relationship down through the years. My wife has a very close association with this church. You think about this. Her daddy was an elder. Her brother was an elder. Her husband an elder. Now her nephew is an elder here. And Ethan, you're the next in line. Might as well get down, get down to number five. For the last year and a half, Linda and I have recently moved. We were living in what you call private living. One step above assisted living. There's 110 people lived there. 80 of them women, average age, 85. 30 men. Only 11 married couples in the entire building. The virus came along, they stopped the church services. Church of Christ and the Baptist both came for a church service and they stopped it. Can't, outsider can't come in. They had seven or eight people that would come to their services. 
And I knew this. Went along for a month or so, and I knew some of the people. I met them in the, in the dining room. It's about the only time you ever saw other people was in the dining room. And uh, uh, these people were asking, inquiring about a church service. I went to the general manager, told her I'd like to have a church service. They first turned me down. A month later, they came back and said, if you'd like to have a church service, be glad to have you. I had no idea what to expect. I didn't know what I expected, the seven or eight. The very first Sunday, we had 21 people. I had to sit down and figure out ahead of time, how am I going to do this? So I told them in that very first service that we will have prayers to the God of heaven. We will have singing. It will be a cappella. We will, uh, we will observe the Lord's Supper each and every first day of the week. If you choose to participate, you can. If not, pass it by. We will give of our means as we've been prospered. If you choose to give, fine. If not, that's okay. Not one penny of this money goes to me. It all goes to the South Canadian Valley Church of Christ to be put in their general fund. If you choose to give, that's fine. You can put something on the plate on the table after the service is over. Our sermons, this, our sermons every time will be book, chapter, and verse for everything that I say because I knew the kind of audience that I had because I had inquired of all the people as I went from table to table inviting them to come to the service of the church. That I was the only man in the building who was a member of the church. My wife and three other ladies was the only members, all the ladies that were members of the church. This will be a very simple service, patterned after the first century Christianity. There will be singing, there will be prayers, there will be the Lord's Supper, giving. Choose if you choose to do so. None of this money comes to me. It was amazing that we were getting Two Sundays, $240. And I never, I never expected that kind of thing. After that very first service, Linda and I went to eat. While we were eating, somebody came by the room where we lived. Came by and slid an envelope under the door. My name on it, misspelled. I opened up the envelope, five $100 bills in that envelope. I still have no idea who did that. I know it wasn't the management of the place because they didn't like the idea of a church service that drew that many people. Our attendance continued very well and went from 18 to 26. And I decided that in my remarks, I'm going to be talking about the idea of restoring some New Testament Christianity because these people had no idea what Christianity was. They had heard religious philosophy from all of their people down through the years. If the, and I told them, if the preacher says it, don't you necessarily believe it. Read the book. See what the book has to say about it. Because the Reader's Digest says that the Church of Christ is the most Bible-bound church in this nation, in this nation today. Over half of my audience, I couldn't believe, over half of the audience was either Catholics or Baptists. I had Methodists, I had First Christian, I had Presbyterian. I told my son Mark, I could run off every one of them with one sermon, but that's not what I want to do. And they kept coming back. 
time after time. And boy, this was a little bit intimidating. One man, a doctor's degree in theology from Yale University, 44 years a Presbyterian minister. Another man, Dr. Baptist, doctor's degree. 16 years a missionary in Brazil, the head of the student over at Dallas Baptist College for many, many years, dean of students over there for many, many years. Ladies that said they were church elders. These are the kind of people that I had in the office. A judge, retired judge, he said, I take everything you say, and the wife and I go back to our room, and we discuss it after, our, after the service is over with. The service was 40 minutes of the morning. The sermon was 15 minutes. We had three songs or the other, and the other parts of the service. You know, this was intimidating to me to have these kind of people in the audience because, you see, I'm a country boy from the hills of Arkansas, son of a sharecropper that went to a two-room school and to have these people out there with doctor's degrees and that kind of thing, sitting in, and sitting in the audience. One man who never had any contact with anybody at all. Got his food, went straight back to his room, no contact at all. I caught him out in the hall. I said, we have a church service every morning, Sunday morning, 9 o'clock. I'd like to have you come. He came. I was surprised that he did, but he was there. After the service, he walked up to me, and he said, I want to tell you, I can't believe what I saw here this morning. You got all these Catholics and you got these Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians. You run an ecumenical service here and you do it in peace and harmony and get along fine. Chase, I wasn't for sure what the word ecumenical meant, but whether he was trying to give me a hard time or make me feel better. But he said, I like what you do, I will be back. He was back for the next five Sundays in a row. That was the theme that I was trying to get across to these people. Why did these people come? They came because they were invited. So therefore, in the last year, I have preached to more non-Christians than I have in the rest of my life. All I've preached to more non-Christians in the past year than all the rest of them put together. I told one of the elders at uh, Norman that I'm going to make some mistakes. And he said, well, you may do that. We don't, have any, we don't have any precedent for what you're doing. Other places have done a Bible study, maybe on a Thursday night or something like that with a couple of songs and a prayer and a, a Bible study. You're doing this on Sunday morning. You're doing a complete church service. We've never, never been tried before. We just don't have any precedent. I encourage those people and my last lesson to those people before we move from there because I couldn't afford to live there any longer was read the book. Obey what it says and it will lead you home to glory. How true that is. As we think about the restoration of the New Testament church and some of the things I was trying to get across to them there was that which was called reformation, reformation. And this was a group of people trying to reform the problems that was found in the Catholic Church. And as suggested by the title, 
the chief effort was to restore New Testament Christianity in worship, in practice, and in serving God. And they found out that they just could not reform the Catholic Church. Jesus said, I will build my church. I believe that he did just that. And we can find that church coming about, founded on the day of Pentecost, A.D. 33. And I would, in, if you have a Bible, you turn with me this morning to the book of Acts, and let me read a few verses from Acts chapter 2, verse 36, through the close of the chapter. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and unto your children, to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourself from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there was added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, and breaking of bread, and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men, as every man had need. And they continued daily with one accord in the temple. Breaking bread from house to house, they'd eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. The Lord set up his church. It was perfect. The members were not. And that's where the problems came. Persecution came the way of the church. Even though it had grown in the beginning, 3,000 that first day. Short time later, 5,000 more were added. That's a lot of people added to the church. Persecution came. Disciples were scattered. They went to different cities and towns. Some traveled a great distance. Wherever they went, they took with them the gospel of Jesus Christ and they began to practice it and teach it and we find churches in all and we find churches in all of these many cities. The apostles then later on sent letters to all of these places concerning uh, the churches that were there in Corinth or in Galatia or in Ephesus town of Philippi, or the town of Colossae, my grandson Jordan, and his wife Aubrey, just returned from a two-week trip in the, in the nation of Greece, and uh, Philippi and Colossae are in that town, and they were in those towns. This was some of the places that Paul sent letters to, because the church had been so corrupted by the Catholics. But there was remnants that remained there was though some that had not been corrupted. I heard Brother Mike Minson tell this story a few years ago, and I think I remember I made some notes of what he had to say, and uh, I think that you will enjoy it. Mike had in his home an exchange student from the small country of Armenia. She was a young lady, 16, 17 years old, come over here as an exchange student. Mike was talking to her, and he said, I noticed that you in your papers, it says you're a Christian. Yes, Mike, I am Christian. I am not Catholic. I am not Protestant. I am not Jewish. I am Christian. T. 
two of the original apostles, and I've forgotten which two Mike mentioned. Those people know which two it was. They brought the word to us almost 2,000 years ago, and we've been practicing and teaching it ever since. They had not been corrupted by the Catholic Church. One of the few that had not. So therefore, she said, I am Christian. These people brought the word to us. Mike said, tell me what you do on the first day of the week. She said, well, we're a poor country, small country, sits right next to Turkey. Armenia sits right at the base of Mount Ararat. She told Mike, well, we sit right at the base of Mount Ararat. Up above our heads is that ark. It's up there. She said, we gather in a home. We do not have church buildings like you have here in the United States. We gather in a, we fill a house full in a community. And then another community, house full of people. While we're there, we sing, we pray. We have the, we have the Lord's Supper. We give of our means. We do not have preaching like you have here in the United States. A brother stands and reads the scriptures. I thought that was interesting. Mike said, what do you do if somebody wants to be saved? She said, Mike, that's simple. Take them down the creek and baptize them. This is a young lady, 16, 17 years old. She knew exactly what she believed. She knew why, where it came from. Hooray for her. New Testament Christianity. Suppose that Christianity, New Testament, was completely wiped out for a period of time. No one had ever seen it or heard it. I believe that it can be restored. Let me give you this example. The game of baseball. My friend Ethan down here, he played baseball a few years ago, enjoyed the game very much. Suppose the game of baseball disappeared from off the face of the earth for two or three hundred years. Nobody had ever seen or heard of the game. But somebody finds the rule book. Ethan finds that rule book. And he starts reading through there. Well, this is nine people on a team. Playing on a diamond-shaped field. Base is 90 feet apart. Hit the ball and run toward first base. There are three strikes and you're out. Read the rules. You can figure out how to play baseball again. Same thing is true in the church. If the church completely wiped out in some area, and no one had ever seen or heard of it, and yet, if you read the rule book, read the rule book, you can figure out how to do it and restore it. Do it again. And it will, comp it will accomplish its purpose. It is known that the restoration movement then was trying to restore the rest of the two, the New Testament pattern of worship and serving God. As the Reformation movement started, there was great gains that was made in the circulation of the Bible because, you see, the printing press had just been invented. And Martin Luther kept that printing press busy. That could have probably have defeated Martin Luther had he not had for that printing press. But instead of one Bible being fastened to the pulpit in the local church community. Now, individuals could have a Bible and they led to increased knowledge of the Word of God. 
as they learned more and more about the Bible. There was less interest in the human creeds in the hearts of many of these people then. Why don't we just go back to the Bible and do away with all the human creeds? Yes, my friends, in that Bible would tell them that the church was established in A.D. 33, that it was perfect in that regard, but some of the members were not perfect. As the number of denominations continued to multiply, creed books, confessions of faith, were being written, rewritten, adapted, updated, it came, became very evident that the Reformation movement was never going to restore New Testament Christianity in its purity and its, in its simplicity. Even Martin Luther realized this because during his, during his lifetime he said, don't name a church after me. He could see what was coming. They did it anyway. Don't name a church after me. I haven't died, I haven't died for anyone. He was still trying to reform that which he was a, the, the Catholic church that he was a part of. Now let us realize that there were many well-known people years ago that were leaders in this movement of trying to restore New Testament Christianity. I will call some names. I will call some religious groups. I do not do it, do it despairingly, but as simply as a part of history that you could find anywhere today. History, what the history records. And let it clearly be understood that Alexander Campbell was not the originator of this movement. I heard that some time ago. You don't hear it very much. But from some of the older people, you would hear the disparaging remarks, well, you're just a Campbellite. We're going to show this morning that the church was around here in the United States long before Alexander Campbell ever comes on the scene. History confirms the fact. And these men then, they had a great deal to do with it. The church was not founded by Alexander Campbell. Uh, let us notice that it is not a denomination that was started on a couple of hundred years ago or something like this. Think about this congregation right here. Somebody in 1847 found the old book. And they started teaching out of it. And this church started. 1847. Go out here on Highway 80 as you go, as you go east. About two miles past Beltline. You'll see a large funeral home on the right. Cemetery right by the side of it. Brother Benny Gordon has a membership role of those people that met there in 1847. This congregation has been around 174 years, still practices and teaches what those people taught 100, 100 and, 174 years ago. So therefore, we're not Catholic. We're not Protestant. We're not Jewish. We're Christian. Nothing more and nothing less. The Bible makes own Christians only. It takes a creed, a hymnal, or whatever to make you something other than a Christian. One of the people that was involved in this restoration movement was James O'Kelly. He was a Methodist preacher. And he and those that agreed with him, they left the Methodist church in Virginia in 1794. And uh, looking up back up here and see, I have some dates up here. And those dates are up there for, up there, up there for a reason because I want to show you 
what was happening before Alexander Campbell ever comes on the scene. James O'Kelly, 1794. And in his address, he made these points. Let us use the name Christian and no other, because Christ is the only head of the church. The Bible is the only creed that we need to have. The next person is Dr. Abner Jones. Dr. Abner Jones was a very prominent Baptist preacher in his day up in Vermont. He became discouraged with what was going on in the Baptist church. And he broke away from the Baptists in 1800. He led in establishing many congregations that endeavored to worship after New Testament order. They wore the name Christian only. They accepted the Bible only as their rule of faith and our practice. Dr. Dr. Jones had never heard of O'Kelly. They lived hundreds of miles apart. They were slightly different times. Never heard of him, but both of them had a New Testament and they were trying to follow New Testament order of pattern. Martin W. Stone was another one because he realized that the Bible only would make you a Christian only. Then it took a creed or something like that to make you something else. And he didn't like where the situation that he was in. You know, these, some of these people now, they write a new creed. They write a new uh, manual, whatever. Or they meet in convention. And I read some time ago a church group in a convention. Resolved. There is no hell. That's one way of getting rid of it. They passed it. There is no hell. That's not exactly what the Bible has to say. Martin W. Stone. Bewildered young man. He wanted to be saved, but he had failed to undergo any kind of experience. The Lord hadn't spoken to him in the middle of the night or anything like that. He was not one of the elect. He wanted to preach, but he hadn't been called to preach. But some of his friends told him, well, you can preach anyway, even though you haven't been called. About two months ago in a Bible study on a Thursday night of where we live with about six or seven people, I shared with them that a few months after Linda and I married, I wrote in a book that I still have that I planned to be an elder in the church. It was nine years before we adopted Mark. And then other children came along. I planned to be an elder. Lady sitting next to me, you can't do that. What do you mean? You hadn't been called to do that yet. You hadn't been called to do that. She said she was an elder in the Methodist church. I told her, you can't be an elder in the Methodist church. The Bible says an elder must be the husband of one wife, and you don't qualify. She didn't exactly like that, but she said, well, the church said I could be an elder, so I am one. Forget what the Bible says. The church said I could do it, so therefore I am an elder. A little bit later in that same Bible study, somebody said, look in the book of Ephesians. She turned to me and said, Chase, you won't believe this. She turned to me and said, is the book of Ephesians in the New Testament or the Old Testament? Here's a lady who said she was an elder in the church, and she didn't know where the book of Ephesians was. 
These people don't know beans about what the Bible has to say. She sure had not been following the advice that Paul gave in the book of Titus in chapter 1 and in verse number 9 that by sound doctrine you are to exhort and to convince the gainsayer. Martin W. Stone made these remarks. We will that people therefore take the Bible as the only sure guide to heaven. And as many are offended with other books which stand in competition with the Bible, they may cast them into the fire if they so choose. For it's better to enter into life having one book than to have many books and go to hell. That's about as plain as you can get it. That's the quote from what he had to say. The work of these men, James O'Kelly, Dr. Abner Jones, Martin W. Stone, they were pleading for a return in the order of things. Each of them was doing this without the knowledge of the other person. They had never heard of one another. Notice the dates up on the board, 1794, 2000, or rather 1800, 1801. The states, they were in Virginia, Vermont, and Kentucky. All of these efforts were made in this direction. They were going before Alexander Campbell ever came to America. Before we discuss Alexander Campbell for a minute and what a person that he was, let's talk about his dad. Thomas Campbell was his father. Thomas Campbell came to America in 1807. Take a look up there. You see a date above a quicker than 1807, don't you? 1805, that's Ashlock. I've been there. Tim's been there. I don't know if this gentleman sitting right down here has been to Ashlock, north of Salina, Tennessee, upon the Tennessee-Kentucky line. But they've been meeting continuously and still practice the same thing that we practice today. And they've been meeting continuously since 1805. When Thomas Campbell... And his associates then renounced their allegiance to the creed and announced that from this time they were going to be guided by the New Testament only. And it was Thomas Campbell, not Alexander, it was Thomas Campbell that said, where the Bible speaks, we speak. Where the Bible is silent, we are silent. When Thomas Campbell and his associates did this, at that time, his son Alexander was still in Ireland. After he was here for about two years, he sent for his family, and they came. Alexander came, came to America in 1809, and he was 21 years old. Take a look at the dates up there. Alexander Campbell got here in 1809. Churches were already meeting, practicing, still meeting today. There were many others that had served for a while and then gone out of existence. But I'm listed up here some of those that have been around down through the years. Alexander Campbell lived to be 78 years old. He passed away in Virginia. My great-grandfather, Church of Christ preacher, was 13 years old living in Bama, 
before that, living there before Alexander Campbell come on the scene? He said, whether he ever met Alexander Campbell or not, I do not know, or whether he ever heard him preach. That I do not know. But my grandfather was Preacher John Spain. That's what his friends knew him by as Preacher John. And it's interesting. I have a copy of a marriage license dated 1896. And in that marriage license, he signs his name, John Spain, that he on that date did unite this couple in marriage. And I like what he put underneath his name. He wrote John Spain, and then he wrote underneath there a minister of the gospel. A poor man. Rode a mule to preach. I'm happy to do that. And one of the prized possessions that I have is I have his sermon book. This is my grandma Woody was his daughter. I wish now that I had asked her more about him uh, uh, while, he, while she was still living. Sure, the remnants of the church, they've been around for a long time. 1669. Look it up in history. 1669. Eight congregations are found in England. They call themselves the Church of Christ. They practice baptism by immersion. They observe the Lord's Supper every Sunday. They had elders and deacons. That sounds like the Church of Christ to me. That was eight different congregations. Brother Harry Cobb. Brent, you knew Harry very well because you traveled with him a whole lot years ago. Harry was in England. He looked up these people, attended their church services. Whether or not they're still there, I do not know. But they were there 30 or 40 years ago, and their history records 1669, 352 years ago. Somebody found the rule book. They figured out how to get some churches started, and they did a good job. Another one. Somebody finding the rule book. The state of Massachusetts, in its Bay Colony Commissioner's work, has erected this historical marker in Revere, Massachusetts, the Church of Christ 1710, meeting house of the Church of Christ in Runny Marsh, 1710. That's 99 years before Alexander Campbell ever came to America. Minnie Gordon and another brother from here was in Massachusetts. I told them about this. They went by and they found that marker that the state had put up. Church of Christ didn't put it up, the state put it up. That at this location, there was a Church of Christ here in the year 1710. So therefore then we have Ashlock meeting in 1805. And then there's, if you go north from Ashlock, about 15, 20 miles, you come to Mulkey. It's the largest log building ever built in the state of Kentucky in the shape of a cross was the Baptist Church. Minister was John Mulkey. They'd been meeting there for two years in this magnificent building. Right in the middle of one of his sermons, and this is on historical markers out there. Because the church doesn't meet there, it meets in town now. And you can read these markers. And it says right in the middle of one of his sermons, he said, I think this ought to be a church of Christ. There was 200 people in the audience that day. 50 of them got up and walked out, went down the road a few miles and established another Baptist church. He took the 150 and they met there for the next 50 years. And then they moved down the road about four or five miles into a small town that was there and built a new building and stopped meeting in the log building. 
the state of Kentucky didn't want to let that building go to waste, and so they keep it maintained. It is now a state park. It's open every day of the week. You can go there. You can walk in the building, split log seats with no backs. You can stand in the same place at where some of these great people of faith delivered their sermons. You can stand in that very same spot. And as you think about this group of people that was meeting there, and then you can walk out of that building, out the side door, walk into the cemetery, and there's another marker. And that marker says, Hannah Boone Pennington, sister of Daniel Boone, was a member of this church. Whether they ever got, uh, whether they ever got Daniel or there or not, I do not know. But his sister is listed as a member of that church back in that day. And I thought that was, I thought that was quite interesting. Other churches that have been around for a long time that are still meeting today. Bridgeport, Alabama is the oldest church of Christ in the state of Alabama. They started 1811. 1819, Rinkin, Georgia. I used these remarks in Norman a few weeks ago. Jordan Winslow sitting back there is having to hear the same sermon he heard a few weeks ago. But uh, when I said 1819, Rinkin, Georgia, Bruce Kessler, one of the elders, hollered, Amen! That's his hometown. That's where he goes to church when he goes back to, back to his hometown, Rinkin, Georgia. They've been meeting since 1819. 1827 is when Alexander Campbell began to preach exclusively in the, in the churches of Christ. And then the next two I just put in there because of the personal relationship I have with them. 18, 1847, Long Creek, Sunnyvale, Texas. That's this church. 1853, Gibson County, Tennessee. That's my great-grandfather, preacher John Spain. Uh, been around for a long, long time. Alexander Campbell began preaching in churches of Christ. He was a man, while all that he could do is unreal. He was the father of 12 children. He was extremely rich. He was a very good businessman and farmer. He was a regular visitor in the White House. He was a regular visitor there. He was a friend of the presidents of that day. He was the Billy Graham of his day. President Madison said that Alexander Campbell is the ablest, most original, and powerful preacher that I have ever known. His sermons usually lasted for three hours. They had one problem with that. There was not a building anywhere that could hold the attendance. Have more people outside than that could get in the building. And when he got through preaching, he was such a spellbinding orator that people would reach and pull out that old round pocket watch and look at it and couldn't believe they'd been sitting there for three hours listening to him. 1850. Alexander Campbell did something that I'm not for sure that any other preacher has ever done. You know, end of January, 1st of February, that the president of this nation gives a State of the Union address, and that State of the Union address is to a joint session of the Senate and the House. In 1850, Alexander Campbell addressed a joint session 
of the House and the Senate, and his, his subject that day was John 3.16. The church enjoyed tremendous growth in 1850. In fact, it had an explosion of growth when Alexander Campbell started preaching. After the Civil War, it was the fastest growing church in the nation. I'll give you an example of the, the way that it grew. Preacher that I found named Joe Blue. He was asked to come and preach for two weeks in a church. That was over three Sundays. He was there. Attendance was good. They were glad that he came. And people had been added to the church. When he finished his last sermon and got ready to start home, he was given a new handkerchief by one of the ladies in the church, and the church gave him $2 in money. He started home, walking 47 miles. It was, late, it was late fall, early winter. Unexpected cold front blew in before he got home. 47 miles walking. That's probably 12 hours or more. Cold front blew in, started snowing. When he got home, his feet was cold, but his soul was happy. You see, during that two weeks, in that congregation, he had baptized 88 people. That's the kind of growth that they were having back in that day. The Restoration Movement is the largest movement in religious history. In the American history, I should say. The history of this nation is the largest religious movement ever. Despite the great work that was done by Campbell, O'Kelly, Jones, Stone, and others, they were uninspired human beings and they were subject to making mistakes. It would be a mistake to try to defend them in everything that they did or taught. They were right only so far as they were guided by the teachings of the New Testament Scriptures. And when the Church of Christ today preaches that same thing, practices that same thing, when you brethren here and the visiting brethren, when you preach and teach that, you're not doing it because they preached and taught it, but because it is founded within the Word of God. It's found in the Word of God. And I trust that you will continue to do that from this time forth. I trust that these remarks, as it is a combination of Bible truths and history all put together. Stop and think about it. If you have a question about any of it, be happy to try to answer it for you if I possibly can. And this good audience of the morning, you may be here not a Christian, not a member of the body of Christ, we encourage you to be a Christian, following the footsteps of the Savior. Be a part of that church group that these men were trying to restore. Be a part of it. Study your Bible, lovingly obey it, and it will lead you home to glory. If you're here this morning, subject invitation of the Lord, as we stand to sing the, my favorite song in this book, would you come as together stand to sing?